0: Hey everyone, my name is Kyla, welcome to my channel where I talk about the stock market and the economy amongst other things. I know I said this video would be out on Friday, but I thought today would be better. So it's out today. It's going to be an interview with Grant Cavanaugh, who's the chief investment officer for scoot science. I did a video with scoot sciences salmon video. Grant has a PhD in agricultural economics from the university of Kentucky, and he also has extensive research in catastrophe markets. So thinking about the worst possible things ever to happen and then pricing out that risk. And I was like, that seems a little bit relevant to right now. So we're going to have a conversation around pricing out agriculture. Risk what that looks like from a reinsurance insurance perspective, talking about India wheat, talking about what he sees in broader commodities markets right now, and just how you can honestly see salmon, which is what he spends a lot of time in relative to the broader commodity markets and how it prices like electricity. Before we get started, I did want to talk because of course I do about what I'm seeing in agricultural markets. So some brief Kyla thoughts. This flowchart that I have on screen, so I'll explain it for people who are listening via audio, but how the world has sort of worked around globalization and trade has been pretty normal for the past, you know, hundred years or so we've relied on a global world that functions just in time for the better part of this last century. But things like war and pandemics begin to break that functionality and it's pretty simplified this flowchart, but there's a few things that I want to highlight. So number one, how a global world normally works. Globalization is a core component of our systems. A lot of countries rely on imports for the majority of their consumption. And that's not a bad thing. It's actually pretty good. That means that countries that are better producing some goods can produce them comparative advantage and then the utilization of resources. more. Effective across the board. This gets into the impacts of a global world, though. So, we have things like a pandemic and a war that makes globalization get disrupted and no longer work the way that we thought it would. All of a sudden, the wheat exports, fertilizer, etc., from Russia and Ukraine are uncertain, which reverberates down the entire supply chain. So, Egypt, which is highly reliant on wheat from russian ukraine no longer has that wheat source anymore and they are left without options and globalization is no longer the solution but the problem and then compound that with supply chain issues at large floods fires and food sources are no longer as stable as they once were or as we expected them to be and so the normal trade process is everything is an input output process it's compiler function we uh, we have natural gas that goes into fertilizer fertilizer goes into crops etc and so if one domino of that process tips the entire thing begins to topple so Russia is a huge exporter of natural gas. Belarus is a huge exporter of potash, a key part of the fertilizer process, which is fertilizer has already increased three to four times in cost, And that's even before these key inputs increased in cost. So that loss impacts food production at large. And then you can think about the impact of trade processes and those results. So domestic protectionism, I've talked about this in previous videos, where countries are going to start to produce more goods domestically and try to wean off imports in general, that could lead to less exports as countries begin to stockpile goods for their people and try and be like, whoa, okay, like Things are nuts. People are nuts. We're just going to keep everything in here. And essentially the globalization framework unravels and countries exist in silos to build out the stock of their silos. And that shortages lead to broader problems. This is something that many analysts have brought up where the echoes of political instability, like what happened with Arab spring due to a lack of food and on thoughts had a really good episode on this with a few key points. So countries should number one, not hoard their food supplies and number two, try to increase aid by supporting agriculture in developing nations and the U S only 15% of our food costs represent the cost of a raw commodity but in places like egypt it's much more one-to-one so we're just going to have to be like mindful of that like things are going to be more expensive in developing nations just because of the way that their food prices out and the way that their government does or doesn't support that i think you have some solutions i think it's pronounced likey like like i'm so sorry if i'm saying it wrong but it's a very good publication it's it's founded by people who were in finance previously and they were like financial media needs to be revamped but they wrote a really good piece called the geopolitics of food and they wrote Wrote, the advent of the internet of things artificial intelligence and big data should help even more as farmers can program fertilizer and water to feed crops at specific times to reduce waste boost yields gene editing should help yield disease and drought resistant crops and both vertical farms and synthetic meats offer unique new possibilities to increase production while decreasing waste humans are super smart and grant and i discuss that even more in the piece that will follow this grant and i talk about everything from, you know, futures onion derivatives to gaps in the markets, to diversity in the markets, uh, tomato futures, what food insecurity looks like in developing nations and how goats can be used as storage vehicles and talking about the salmon hall, how that relates to electricity. And then the final point is commodity crises are a very good time to remember that we are a global world and that sure. Yeah, we rely on globalization, but we also rely on each other to maintain all of this, right. And we have to take care of each other. We have to take care of the world around us and there's many lessons that we can learn from what we're currently going through to hopefully come out on the better side of all of this more united more connected and um more better (laughs) more better so please enjoy this interview with grant thank you hey grant thanks for the chat super excited to talk about everything from agriculture to catastrophes to derivatives to salmon with you
1: yeah i love i i'm such a debbie downer uh I love talking about catastrophes, so I'm I, I'm here for it completely. Yeah,
0: you have extensive background in c- catastrophe research. Do you just want to like explain a little bit of what you've done and sort of what you've studied over the past couple of years?
1: I always knew that I wanted to to work on agriculture, and specifically, like by the time I was going to to undergrad school I, I went to a feeder school for the US State Department and a lot of people go on to work at the US State Department itself or the World Bank and international development type projects and doing that early on I got to see like how cool and interesting the puzzles that people were solving were in the world of insurance so that's uh that's what led me down that path and I've worked on both the property and casualty side sometimes people hear the term property casualty insurance don't really know what that Is is first order approximation property is hurricanes hitting the East coast of the United States. If you had to pick one single risk to sum it all up and the casualty side is kind of the search for the next asbestos. Like the, the equivalent of uh, a hurricane hitting Miami uh, is, is uh, asbestos in the world of, of, of casualty. Um, So I've worked on both of those, like as a modeler. So making, statistical models of these risks and how they merge over time and what we should think about them.
0: So can you get a little bit more like into this idea of catastrophe? like, how do you measure that risk? How do you think about that risk? How do you price out something that theoretically nobody knows is going to happen? Right. So like, how do you think about that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, so there's a lot that people don't know. And then, but if you oftentimes even with really big, nasty Problems, you can break it up into constituent parts and start wrapping your mind around it in in a functional way. So, um, going back to 1992, Hurricane Andrew hit Southern Florida. That was a really big event for reinsurers. Reinsurers are the ones who are really taking those big risks associated with hurricanes and earthquakes. And your insurance company itself is kind of gathering up a lot of risk and ultimately trying to efficiently pass it on to a reinsurer who's really in the business of saying, is there going to be a big catastrophe event or not? And reinsurers like Swiss Re or Munich Re, those tend to be the folks who like sponsor soccer teams. Those folks, the only way that you could put money to work in these reinsurance markets was by just buying their equities. And um, people started thinking about what if we had alternatives and what kind of tools would support the alternatives to just putting money into these companies. And the tools that emerged were... what are called catastrophe models so hurricanes and earthquakes are the big two property risks globally and there's a couple companies um are Worldwide and RMS and CoreLogic. There's a few of these companies that provide big models that simulate, they, they hire structural engineers to simulate buildings and building codes, and they hit them with virtual hurricanes. And that provides the baseline for pricing all historic catastrophe risk across the world. You can also imagine that that a lot of risks sit outside those two core models that kind of act as like ratings, credit ratings, but for reinsurance. And so I was like on the desk that handled everything that sat outside of that suite of kind of well-established, well-modeled risks.
0: So you were handling like the catastrophes that were just like almost random and there wasn't, like, it's not like a hurricane. It's not like a tornado. It's something that- just nobody thought it would happen. And it does that kind of stuff.
1: Well, no, it's more like ones that just, we haven't gotten around to systematically modeling. So in 2014 and 2015, the Indian government was really, you know, India has these, India is an overwhelmingly rural country and, its agriculture historically has been rain fed. So they're entirely dependent on the monsoon rains that come between June and kind of roughly September of every single year. And People like watch the rain pattern every single year. And it's really important to the lives of a billion people basically. And in 2014, 2015, they had really nasty losses and there wasn't any national agricultural insurance scheme in place. And so they decided to start one, which would kind of overnight become the, one of the biggest agricultural insurance programs in the world. And, uh, and, and so I was one of the main kind of reinsurers of that for, for a couple of years. Um, so, you know, had a <laughs> spent a lot of time in individual rural districts of India, looking at the state of crops. And then going back home and building statistical models on the basis of what we knew about how the crops grow or how the rain fell or just how the individual insurance companies involved do or do not do a good job administering the program.
0: You go and you look at the fields, right? And you check everything Mm -hmm. out. How do you begin to build that into a model? Like, how do you price out? a potential catastrophe happening, especially with regards to Indian wheat.
1: The way that a lot of programs work globally, a lot of agricultural insurance programs, they're called indemnity programs. And indemnity means that somebody shows up with a clipboard at your farm and says like, boy, you lost a lot of crop here and here and here. And we're going to cut you a check that's very specific to your experience. Now, you can imagine that in the world of large American farms, that kind of works. It still has its inefficiencies, but, um, but the scale is kind of well aligned. But once you get down to Indian farms, which on average are much, much smaller than American farms, and you're talking about it's somewhere around 65% of the total population is, is rural there's just too many farms. So what you do is you randomly pick farms and systematically measure their yield for different crops at those randomly picked farms. And then we pay all the farmers in an area based off of those crop cutting experiments. So it's a, it's a, it's a pretty good design for a a program and it makes it much more tractable because you end up with this data set, which is saying, here are all the crop cutting experiments. Here are all the yields for all the individual villages all around India. And on that basis, you can start building statistical models that link that up to rainfall at certain times of the year or different problems that might be tractable for data science, machine learning type techniques.
0: And so did you pay them as a reinsurer or did you pay them for the data? In that
1: circumstance, you know, I was sitting in the seat of a reinsurer. So um, you go in and try and find companies that do a really good job of administering, picking the individual districts where they want to participate and administering the program overall. So part of what you're guessing is not just how is this village going to do over time? Like how often does it fall short based off of historic patterns, but also like, Who, who, who's just on top of their systems for managing this program and and things like that?
0: And I want to revisit this idea of Indian heat, but I do want to talk a little bit about the time that you spent in derivatives, um, especially around like 2012. Uh, So you worked within the CFTC. Commodities are, as um, you know, as everybody knows, like they're on an absolute tear right now. So could you talk about what it was like back then, specifically within the world of derivatives, like working within the CFTC and just thinking about all the different stuff that's going on relative Mm -hmm. to to then? Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, uh, so. Go back to 2010. Gary Gensler, who whose name you may have heard recently, was yeah the new the new uh, exciting chairman of the CFTC. And we had this like truly weird event um, that happened called the flash crash, an intraday six percent move in all sorts of major indexes of futures trading and things like that, like core core individual indices seemed to move in crazy ways. And people were unsure. Was it a fat finger error or what? And, uh, and so, you know, this tells you a little bit about the bureaucratic mentality of these different regulatory bodies, but like Gary Gensler really, really wanted to be the one in, in front of America explaining what had just happened in this weird circumstance. There was a researcher on his team, Andre Karolenko, who uh, was an excellent researcher at the time who just had really good resources and capability. And even though a lot of the markets that were associated with the flash crash weren't under Gary Gensler's regulatory remit, he was the one who could come with like really interesting analysis of what had happened during the flash crash and why. And that started off this circumstance where the research uh, team at the CFTC got a lot of resources to bring in outside academics to just work on various and sundry problems. And the quid pro quo was, you're going to work supporting us in implementing and responding to questions regarding the implementation of the Dodd-Frank overhaul of American financial regulation. And in return, we're going to let you work with some really interesting data. That was like cool until about 2012 and, and I was working on on questions of like just base rates of how often do new and interesting futures and derivatives contracts actually reach a kind of um, sustainable level of high trading and we, we were um, I was working with a researcher there named Mike Pennick, who's a really smart guy who'd done all this hard work of digitizing you know, log books of open interest and trading volumes that were like physical log books. I mean, you could blow the dust off of them in the CFTC library. It was cool. And and so my stuff was like super interesting to me. It turns out that in the past, like there's a lot of path dependency and futures and And options trading, like you really had to succeed or else you were gonna fail. Right. There was no in-between in terms of trading historically. Like you either came right out of the gate and did extraordinarily well, like interest rate derivatives, or you fell on your face like shrimp derivatives. And there was a lot of failures um, over time. Yeah. Inter- I mean, there's always interesting stories about which ones actually get up and going and which ones don't. Like, I always loved the story of um, someone tried to start a futures on opening box office. So like opening weekend at the box office, we bet on what who who was getting what money from that. the film industry, as best as I can see, kind of lobbying to kill it. There's been a few (laughs) weird things like that and like onions where we've, the government has collectively said, we will not trade futures in these contracts in perpetuity, seemingly. I loved all those stories of which ones failed and which ones uh, succeeded. I was humming along Having fun. Um, but sort of unbeknownst to me, a lot of people were doing a lot of really interesting work, I think, in the public interest that was showing that high frequency traders were making more or less risk free profits at the expense of pension funds at the time. It was a short window. The research might have already been stale by the time that they displayed it publicly. They did have a public event where they showed off some of this research. It made it into newspapers. And some of the trading ben- venues that were supplying the underlying data said, this was not what we signed up for. Effectively, our high frequency trading clients are making us tons of money. We don't want public research denigrating them. And so like, Overnight, I was <laughs> fired as a contractor, as well as all of the um, outside academics who were working in the department. The The book Flash Boys has like a two-sentence description of what happened. But it was really interesting to go from this department that was putting out like really interesting research to overnight, <laughs> we were all like locked out of the building because of this controversial research. So I, I think that just goes to show the difficulty of... Um, Doing research in the public interest at, at, at regulators.
0: And so, to kind of summarize that, because that's I've never heard about this. Uh, basically, what happened was you the group published research saying that high frequency trading was making profit at the expense of pension funds. What what did the research say that kind of led to such a brutal conclusion?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I can't say for certain. As best as I I remember it, it it was functionally based off of the trading patterns of lots of different traders, you could kind of identify in rough terms, even in anonymized, anonymized data, who was trading in such a way that they looked like high frequency traders and who wasn't and and sort of if you just looked at the results and I, I don't know the specifics of their research, but, but that was the, the basic conclusion was they weren't taking a lot of risk, but they were getting a lot of reward. And I think as best as I can tell, um, uh, high frequency trading returns sort of were competed away from that point on. So it, it's a story that relates to, to kind of what comes up in Flash Boys to some extent.
0: Looking at the broader commodity market right now, so kind of what's happening with nickel, just like across the board, do you have any takeaways from your time, you know, on derivatives or relative to what's going on now? Like any thoughts around broader market movements at the moment? When people
1: think of, I'm definitely not an expert in this, but I'll say like one thing that you can look back at the history of these marketplaces and see that oftentimes people are using a traded commodity as a, a shadow, you know, cross hedge, dirty hedge for what they actually trade in, in the world. So, you know, in corn markets, the actual traded market is a pretty good representation of what most people produce, but there's also there's all sorts of markets where there's a real gap between kind of the actual commodity that I produce and the thing that's traded on the marketplace. And to the extent that those, those gaps exist, they feel kind of theoretical in times of normalcy, right? But in times of crisis, when like you really genuinely need this type of commodity in this type of place, that's when you see weird dislocations like what's happened in, in nickel. And if you remember back to the previous big crisis in, in agricultural commodities, that, that one sort of started in rice. Um, and rice is not really a internationally traded thing, but you'll recall that people really started taking note of, uh, of rice price displacement when I think it was Sam's Club or maybe Costco put a limit on how much rice you could buy in, this was in 2007, 2008, when the prices were going wild. And that's that's another one where it's not really an internationally traded market because in large part, everybody eats their own special kind of rice. Basmati rice is its own market, short grain sushi rice is its own market. There's not a lot of standardized trade on an international level between different rice folks and it's considered a point of national security functionally in, in places like India. So there's consequently there's real restrictions on import and export. That kind of that kind of diversity within a market always leaves a market vulnerable in times of of kind of acute stress.
0: But that diversity in a market leaves a market vulnerable in times of acute stress, and that's mostly because there isn't standardization across the board. Can you explain that a little bit further?
1: In the nickel case, the type of nickel that that um, the main trader associated with the displacement was producing was fundamentally different than the type that was actually deliverable under the contract, and so that creates a uh, opportunity for there to be short-term price displacement that. Um, you can kind of wave that that functional quality difference away in circumstances where things are just like normal. They'll, there's going to be a regular statistical link between the nickel that's traded on the exchange and the nickel that 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 producer makes, right? But in times of acute crises where you actually have to just show up with the, the specific grade of nickel involved, then things can go really wild. And, and there's all sorts of futures contracts that never actually got off the ground because there wasn't enough standardization in the underlying contract because too many people trade things that are too different in terms of their underlying quality. Like, you know, there's no tomatoes futures contract because the quality of tomatoes varies too much. We can't even get close to a circumstance where, where we all are looking at the same page when it comes to the price of tomatoes.
0: And does that worry you? Are you like, we need to have tomato contracts? Or are you like, this is just a thing that's happening and it's okay?
1: Um, I think it's the deviation from people's expectations that create real... Um, You know, chaos in markets in the short term. It's when you thought you had a nickel that more or less was like the nickel that was trading, and then all of a sudden you find out that's not the case. As long as everybody's on the same page, then markets will proceed in a more or less orderly fashion. That's not always true, but first order approximation, yeah.
0: That gets into like, I think, agricultural risk too. So going back to what we talked about a little bit earlier with India and wheat and just like, broader risk. So when you think about agricultural markets, because this is so relevant right now, how do you price it out? I
1: mean, it's pretty similar. Like oftentimes you have to think about what's baked into underlying prices and underlying expectations, and then look for the meaningful gaps between what's baked in. And, and, you know, so, so for example, like um, here, I can share my screen and show you a little, a few things about, you know, what I'm looking at. Here's one good global crop monitor for wheat. And you're looking around at different places that are producing wheat right now. Green is good. Yellow is a place to watch. Obviously, Ukraine is all in in yellow right now. And one of the important pieces to note is that actually on a global scale, most of the wheat in the world is, is produced in China and produced in India. Those are the top two wheat producers. China, we never really know what's going on. There's not a lot of publicly available information on the basis of satellite information and other arms length information. We were thinking that China was doing well this year, but there's also been public reports that there's been flooding and ultimately like it's really hard to understand. India has had a really unprecedented string of good monsoons since 2015, roughly. Funnily enough, since they put up this large good agricultural insurance program, they've had excellent monsoons, which means, as you can expect, everybody's turning around saying like, why did we pay for all this stupid insurance? Like, this is a highway robbery. We haven't gotten a material payout. And it, it just sort of happens that we've had a string of like five or six really pretty like manageable monsoons in a row. And on a historic basis, usually we see a lot more nasty monsoons. So here's here's a picture of, of Indian monsoons over time. Um, you know, I'd say every four or five years, these red ones that are going, especially down this pink line, those are big, nasty monsoons. And we just have like kind of cruised in the normal range for a few years in a row. When we were assessing Indian output, which today is kind of green, that's only kind of a first order assumption. like. It gives you a first order sense of like how is India doing? But in practice, like a lot of um, our experience as insurers or reinsurers is dictated by much more localized phenomena that you can't really assess it at arm's length easily. So here's a here's a map of hail incidents globally. This is like red is a lot of hail and white is not too much hail. Most of Indian India's wheat is grown right in the foothills, you know, running up to the Himalayas, which also the sh- right in front of mountain ranges is where you get a lot of nasty hail mm. and hail is a really tricky risk, right? Because it'll hit one town or half of a town and, and leave the other half of the town totally untouched. And so consequently, it was like individual hail events that might stretch all across Uttar Pradesh, all across Northern India, that would wipe out huge pieces of the wheat crop right at this time of year, that would always surprise and result in, in nasty losses in agricultural books. And it's really, really hard, even today, to at arm's length assess like whether hail has hit your particular village or your particular field. All that is to say, it's a good circumstance for two of the largest producers and consumers of wheat in the world. And, but we're in a critical period for risks like hail that could still sort of spoil the party on, an, on a one-off basis. The other piece of this is that more and more there's been a trend because the cost of storing wheat and grains in general has gone down more individual farmers are taking into their own hands the infrastructure to store their grains than say in the past. And so places like Australia, it's really actually hard to estimate today, individual farmers have built more infrastructure for storing their own wheat as opposed to in the past where they'd they'd go and bring their wheat to a third party who owned the storage infrastructure. And so as more and more people are storing more and more of their wheat privately, then just information about that storage, those storage patterns just becomes less, how much grain is act- is actively being stored because fewer and fewer people are storing it in public kind of venues. So those would be two areas, the storage and like hail where you might see like big um, deviations for people's expectations right now.
0: And does India, this may be a silly question, but do they grow spring wheat? So is their planting season about to commence or is it?
1: So so India's pattern of cropping is built around the monsoon. And so all of the crops that the, the way that the monsoon works is every single year right here in Sri Lanka, the monsoon Starts right around June 1, the monsoon hits here and then it just cruises up into Pakistan until about uh, early July. So across sort of the month of June, early July, that's what we're watching throughout the, the first part of the season. And um, people plant as the monsoon comes through their village, right? You can't plant in like rock hard ground. So So whether the monsoon is delayed in any given year, that's going to determine the planting schedule for the first crop of the year, which tends to be really, you know, water intensive. The second crop of the year, you harvest that first crop in... November, December kind of ballpark. And then the second crop of the year tends to be wheat and pulses, lentils, things like that. So that would have been in the ground in December, January, and they'd be harvesting now. And just at the last minute, like hail events that cover entire Indian states could like wipe out a material portion of the overall crop.
0: And so I'm a little bit interested in just like the reinsurance process of that. So like if all of a sudden India gets hit by a massive hail storm, like what does that look like? What did that look like for you as a reinsurer? Like how do you manage that for them, with them, alongside them?
1: Well, reinsurers don't really have the luxury of trading in and out of their positions the same way that other folks do. You can't really cut your losses. You just, if a hurricane is coming to hit Miami, I mean, there's a little bit of trading that people do, but more or less you're you're just going to Pay out what's dictated in the underlying policy. And so, you know, that's a circumstance where uh, you have to get a pretty good sense of what the long term averages kind of adjust for factors like El Nino that you can observe before getting on the policy and then you just sit and wait and see how things go. That's the very idea of, of insurance and reinsurance. It's that the you know you can come back to the same person who you talked to originally and remind them that they owe you money.
0: I want to get a little bit into your work with Scoot Science as well. So like um, kind of leading into that though, are there any themes that you and Scoot are paying attention to, like either in the commodity mar- markets that are worrying or exciting? Like what are you all sort of like watching right now?
1: It's helpful to compare Salmon markets to some of the other markets that people might be walking watching today, and and that gives you a sense of like kind of where we're coming from. I know you 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 like refrigerator art. I do too. Electricity is a commodity market where literally for the whole thing to work, we have to consume exactly what we produce at the moment that it's produced, more or less. There's no ability functionally at a utility scale to store electricity. We're working on that, but today you got to use it. Or lose it or lose the whole system, really. So um, you can move it across space pretty kind of easily. Like we build transmission lines and you can move the electricity instantly across space, but you can't really store it and move it across time currency is pretty good you know you put cash in your wallet like it's hopefully there when you come back it's movable across space and across time in a in a pretty functional way water isn't traded globally but it's pretty easy to store relatively speaking like we have reservoirs or underground places that we put water over time and it kind of is there when we back and get it and then there's things that are just like really really expensive to store move across space or time like services and those aren't really traded commodities so something like wheat we're seeing the limits of it being moved across space like in practice 30 percent or something of the world's wheat that is exported and actually moved across space is coming from russia or uh, ukraine and so it's people kind of assume that it's easy to move across Uh, space, but it's actually much harder to move across space. It's still pretty easy to move across time. You can store wheat for a long time, pretty cheaply. And in low-income countries, grains, there's not a lot of good storage opportunities for grains. Pests get in there, et cetera. And so people actually use livestock as a way to store grains in low-income communities. So you can think of your goat if you're in a village in Ethiopia as being a form of storage across space and time functionally. And so when you see really acute periods of nasty um, uh, food insecurity, famine type situation, it's often because people have the exchange rate between livestock and edible food goes wild. So everybody's trying to sell their goats all at once. There's goat hyperinflation and all of your savings kind of evaporate over time functionally. That's one way of thinking about famine and there's markets like rice that we think of that like theoretically could be really good about for storage but in practice like there isn't one rice market there's too many rice markets for any one of them to really be globally traded of all of these salmon which we work on today is really actually pretty close to electricity it most of what we consume in terms of salmon is not frozen it's fresh It has to more or less be consumed roughly in the time that it's produced. We can move it from country to country. Most of our salmon comes from Norway or Chile or some someplace, but we really can't move it across time without losing a ton of the value. So freezing your salmon instantly results in it having a lot less market value. Supply in the short term is pretty well fixed. It takes two and a half years or something to grow a salmon to a commercial weight And so like in the short term, the salmon haul is going to be what it's going to be. So that creates electricity type displacements, a little more electricity type displacements in the marketplace than a lot of other commodities. I've always, always loved agricultural issues, but uh, agricultural markets, like in some cases, there's a fundamental trade-off between say sustainability and in, in terms of carbon footprint and uh, and profit or there's just tons of information and it's really hard to add additional value through your expertise or just like the margins in the underlying crop are really low so how much profit your brilliant idea can really create people is is fundamentally constrained because the the marketplace is already pretty efficient and and kind of none of those apply to salmon like salmon's one where A lot of the greenhouse gas footprint is driven by mortality on these farms. So if we can lower the mortality, then we're lowering the carbon emission per unit of protein that we provide. The margins have been astoundingly high. So like people... Need your expertise, and and there just isn't a lot of expertise out there to go around. So, so these days, Scoot Science, I work with this like really accomplished, interesting team of ocean scientists who kind of love the opportunity to apply their expertise, their PhDs, and forecasting ocean temperatures and things like that, and they help. Salmon companies um, navigate like a lot of really weird, acute risks that come along. The equivalent of hail type events are faced every day by by salmon farms around the world.
0: So how do you think about Scoot and sort of like the work around salmon in light of this broader commodity inflation? Like what role do you think salmon farming and like sustainable salmon farming has in this world where things that are normally not scarce seem a lot more scarce?
1: One, one piece of things, I, like even when you talked about this world where things normally feel scarce, you're, you're referencing people's expectations and people's expectations are, are actually like at this point pretty darn efficient. In the world of agriculture, way more efficient than they were in the 1940s or 1950s, when we still saw on a global scale, massive famines all across the world. Now, those massive famines, it's not just about information. Oftentimes, they're like a lot of government policy involved or other other sorts of complicated factors, but, um, but just Knowing what's happening and having some arm's length way of of rocking the circumstance, people just take that for granted in the world of agriculture in a way that they can't when we come to the oceans, because we have been developing tools to support forecasting of weather and things like that for decades. And they're pretty good today. That's just not the case in ocean-based industries. They just don't have the equivalent of a five-day forecast for ocean conditions. Here, I can I can show you actually our little forecasting tool or one part of it. Can you see that? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So here's British Columbia, this is kind of one of the regions that's had um, a lot of recent constraining impacts of climate change, and so it's kind of not a coincidence that that's been the region that's asked for our help in forecasting ocean conditions the most. And we can go backwards and forwards in time using physics-based models of the underlying ocean. This is salinity, so we're going across time. And also critical piece is that in oceans, there's a depth component. There's a depth component with the atmosphere too, but people usually care most about what's happening at the surface in the atmosphere. Whereas in the oceans, like it it really matters because your salmon might be living at 10 meters, 20 meters depth. So this is the first time in many circumstances that you have something that's functionally equivalent to all the big physics based weather models that are running globally and are really, you know, a tailwind for all of agriculture as they're sitting out to decide when to plant or when to harvest or things like that. That just doesn't exist in oceans today. And we're kind of the first ones to build it. So it, it, like, it's exciting. It's cool to, to be able to, in a relatively simple way, connect up these oceanographers who've been working really hard on quantitative problems with the people who didn't even know that those tools were available.
0: How do you all think about the balance of the economy and the environment, right? So helping these communities that rely on salmon farming have a more sustainable path but also make money which they need
1: there are definitely um environmental impacts that have to be managed associated with these operations and you know there's a lot of questions also about fish welfare and and the kind of um ethical and, and moral considerations that you that you Uh, standards that you have to try and meet if you're going to, in a responsible way, feed the global population. And so we feel like we're in a position where we're offering people the tools to actually systematically get better on all of those things. And it's worth noting that like the salmon industry has had this tremendous, it's a tremendous success story in a weird way. Like when I first read about this industry, um, there was a big nature article in I want to say 2001, 2002, that was saying basically salmon is hopeless. Like the salmon will never, ever successfully be a, protein source that actually on net is supporting like sustainable seafood consumption because so much of the feed at the time that was going into salmon was coming from places like Peru where they would harvest anchovies turn them into fish meal fly them or ship them halfway across the world and feed them to salmon and at the time their regime for feeding the salmon wasn't very efficient so it was taking more fish in It was taking, you know, more than a kilogram of fish input to produce one kilogram of fish output. Wasn't very good, right? But at the same time, I mean, there was a major driver, which was the world's fish stocks were plummeting. A lot of major places all around the world had, had, you know, reached the point where they successfully overfished. And fast forward 20 years later... Ratio of the feed efficiency has changed dramatically to the point where um, salmon is now on net creating fish when uh, at these operations. And that's all without the basic tools that we take for granted in agriculture. So I just see such a great pathway for groups to continue to improve. And they really want to, like, I would bet that there's no other industry in the world that has a higher percentage of the total industry that's already signed up to green loan facilities or green bonds where they're pledging the at these specific metrics, we're going to get better over time. So we'd like to help them do that as quickly as possible.
0: Yeah. I think it's uh, super needed, right? Like, cause we have all this ESG talk and sometimes that doesn't translate to real-world application. I think you're making a lot of progress. So thanks. I mean,
1: I just kind of love these problems. So it doesn't feel very like, Mm -hmm. but I will say, you know, there are some like cool stories. Well, not, maybe some, some illustrative stories that, that resonate in my mind as I'm thinking about some of the issues related to, to salmon today, some of the challenges that it's facing. Like being an agricultural weenie, I went to college in Washington, D.C., and there's this great international think tank that that's focused on agricultural issues. And at the time, um, there was a researcher who w- had dedicated his life to plant breeding on behalf of kids in Asia who had low, um, I believe it was vitamin D. Um, A lot of currently bred rice doesn't have vitamin D and there's systematic nutrient deficiencies among low income communities all across Asia who rely on rice for a big portion of their total calories. Mm -hmm. He at the time was was talking at IFPRI about his attempts at um, genetically modifying rice so that it would produce vitamin D. And a lot of kids wouldn't suffer from the blindness associated with vitamin D uh, deficiency. And at the time, you know, GMO crops were similarly controversial. uh, And and it just made a huge impression to me, just seeing this uh, dedicated rice breeder who had like put his life's work in a very earnest way in helping the world. And it felt like there was a lot of... um, knee-jerk pushback against just the technological package in which those good intentions and success arrived. And it's it's kind of a really tragic story that that these products were never really commercialized, a large part because of um controversy related to the very the the kind of labels that were put on the effort itself. And just to hear him talk about you know the vision he had was really inspiring and also a little heartbreaking that helps frame some of the work that, that we're doing today, even on a a times a a controversial section of agriculture.
0: I didn't know that story. That's really powerful. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Is, Is there anything else that you want to add or any final thoughts that you have?
1: You know, I'll, I'll leave you with this. Like there's so many interesting stories that are just like not covered in the world of agriculture. Like for example, in 2019, Some people estimate that something like 40% of all of China's pigs died from African swine fever, which was this terrible, massive pandemic that swept through the pig population in China. We don't really know what those overall numbers were, but like the parallels with the subsequent pandemic that we suffered as humans, I mean, pigs and humans have a lot of biological similarities. Just seeing this pandemic play out and kind of like functionally, such a huge portion of all sentient beings on the planet died in this pandemic. And it never even was like mentioned in newspapers. That seems crazy to me. And I feel like agriculture is just filled with those fascinating, interesting stories that reflect back on the lives of even people who, who, you know, aren't from rural areas or don't work in rural areas like periodic commodity crises are opportunities at least to to remember that that there's a lot happening in in the world's rural communities um even even when we can go 10 15 20 years collectively not paying all that much attention
0: thank you grant yeah we take a lot for granted i think that that's a really stark reminder what you've highlighted today around that and that we really should think a little bit more critically around the world around us well i
1: (laughs) ending on a you know that's that's a real reinsurance no, I go yeah. out on like forty percent of all pigs. Died. That's <laughs> no. that's like that's just like the equivalent in reinsurance world of like have a nice weekend, everybody.
0: <laughs> you all just um, like list bad stats out to each other as you're leaving all the office. time, all the
1: time. I used to commute into into work. I worked north of San Francisco, mm-hmm. I, over the most rickety bridge in the San Francisco Bay Area, and like we'd talk about what kind of earthquake would destroy the bridge we were commuting over in the day. That's the kind of fun guys we were are.
0: That's amazing. Definitely big party invite people. Well, thank you so <laughs> much. Um, and Thank you. To, uh, to reach out to you, what's the best way to do that? Or
1: Yeah. I mean, check out our website, sweetscience.com. We've got a big 100 page paper on the economics of individual salmon assets all across the world and what it's like to potentially consider those as an investment. They're not, you know, on the market today but we think that they're appropriate for institutional portfolios so if there's anybody out there who looks at this and says that's interesting that's truly an uncorrelated asset that we'd like to to work with you to bring into our portfolio you know please do reach out to us through the website like there's there's lots of different opportunities to 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 collaborate in operationalizing all this research.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I'll have all that linked below in the description box and in the podcast uh, description as well. So yeah, thank you so much, Grant. This has been great.
1: Cool, thanks.
0: All right, everybody, I hope that you enjoyed this interview. Please feel free to leave thoughts, comments, questions below. Grant is super, super smart, and I highly recommend that you go check out Scoot Science. They do a lot of amazing work, and I think it's pretty cool and like one of the things that we need if we're going to transition to a more renewable, green world eventually one day, maybe. Yeah, so I will be back soon, and I will talk to everybody then, and I hope that you're having a good day, and I'll see you soon. Bye.